you're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapist. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Renoy, and this is the podcast about all things therapists, the things that we do, the places our field is, where it's going. And we are once again joined by one of our Therapy Reimagined 2021 speakers, Dr. Diane Gayhart, LMFT, talking about the future of psychotherapy. And this is something where we're really excited to always look forward of where we're going. And for our longtime listeners know that we kind of try to push the envelope here with the things that we do on the podcast, with our conference. And it's always wonderful to have like-minded people and not making lots of stupid jokes to start this because Diane's my boss over at California (laughs) State University, Northridge. So thank you for joining us today. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. We're so excited to have you here. And we start each of our interviews with this question. Who are you and what are you putting out into the world? Wow. Wow. That is a, that's a big question. Um, I'm going to try to keep it simple though. I'm Diane Gayhart. I am a, a licensed marriage family therapist. I have been a professor of family therapy for, I'm coming up on my 25th year of teaching full time. I currently um, run the family therapy program at CSUN and Kurt is our amazing law and ethics instructor. So it's really a pleasure to be here. Um, yeah. And oh, and and just jumping in, I'm going to point out to one of our listeners, Dr. Ben Caldwell, she didn't mention you. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. But you teach two law and ethics classes for me, and Ben only teaches one. So, so I am twice as good as Ben. Twice from... as valuable as valuable to me. <laughs> okay, there we go. Because <laughs> let me tell you, you two are the best of the best. And so we absolutely have the best law and ethics classes of any MFT program in the United States. I'm really sure of that. So yes, in addition to hiring some of the best faculty in the world, I do a lot of uh, writing in the area around mental health theories. I've written textbooks both. And in fact, I believe I'm the only person who's written mental health textbooks on both family therapy and counseling theories, which are actually two different worlds if you're in the mental health world. So I'm really passionate about theories and how therapists learn. I've done a lot of work around trying to create better ways for people to learn how to become therapists using competencies and simulation and all sorts of new things. So that's a little bit about me and what I do, what I put out in the world. As an educator who's been around for quite a while, very loaded question to start out with here, but what's what's wrong with therapist education? Wow. 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 Yeah, it is. It is a big question. And I have, I've really been privileged, I think, in my career to, and I've had people say, Diane, how do you end up at the forefront of everything? And I really have been blessed and lucky. I did a lot of training early in my career. And it's really been fascinating to watch the evolution of what has happened over the last 20, 30 years in the field. Because when I started My first degree was a master's degree in counseling. And, you know, we learned about eight theories. Evidence-based treatment was not a thing. We hardly learned, we didn't learn about the brain in my grad program whatsoever. We didn't even have a psychoform class. 
you know, it was pretty much pick a theory that you like, learn it, you know, and when you graduated, you knew you'd go to all the conferences on this and you were done. You felt competent. We didn't have imposter syndrome back then. I mean, it was really different. And when, you know, I went to my MFT doctoral program, you know, again, it was about eight theories I had to learn. They overlapped a lot with the counseling ones, pick one, get good at it, you know, and, you know, enjoy your career. So that's pretty much what it was like when I started. And so I just finished writing a state of the art, you know, master's program in family therapy that, you know, uh, meets the national co-ante standards, that meets California licensing standards, and that meets the needs of the stakeholders, the employers in, which is LA County Mental Health for CSUN. So I've made everyone really happy. And there are about 25 different theories, some traditional, some evidence-based that my students are learning. And it is amazing because my students are exceptionally well-trained, not just because of Kurt, but we have an amazing faculty. It's an amazing curriculum. And when they leave, they are so confused. They have imposter syndrome. They, they don't know where to start and they're totally lost. And I sit here and I, I watch this because I know what it was like where I started and what that looked like. And now I'm looking at where students are today. And it's this cannot continue. It's, it's kind of where I'm at. It's it's really, it's this bizarre thing where in some ways students are getting more information than ever, um, but they feel less and less competent. So it's this weird paradox. Um, the way we have just, we've been doing what we've been doing for years and we just keep adding on, adding on, adding on, but there's no synthesis, there's no integration, and it's overwhelming students, especially at the master's level. Katie and I talk about you know, problems in therapist training and education. We have been for several years here, and I've heard forever back to when we were students about, you know, therapists need more training. And I've never heard it kind of put in the terms that you ha- are, are putting it in here now of maybe we're throwing too much at people. And that's what's leading to a lot of this problem as it's developing. What is possible as far as fixing this direction that we're going like what can actually be done you're familiar with all of these standards you have you know a million different bosses maybe not directly but a bunch of people's requirements that you have to meet what is actually possible to kind of change the momentum to helping people feel more confident entering into our field while still being well educated and, and that is the $10 million question, because what is what we have is we have we have licensing boards, and I think our licensing process needs to be totally overhauled. Um, it just so happens I'm in a position in my career where, because I've been thinking about retiring, moving to another state, I have to take the national MFT exam. I'm taking it actually on July 21st this summer, and I, I ended up having to learn all about the national MFT exam, which has such ancient theories in it that like, I actually have been taking them, those theories out of my textbook. And I'm like, oh my God, because I'm running a class on laughter way to licensure. And I have just been <laughs> shocked and slightly horrified at how much old information, like if they really want you to learn symbolic experiential, because they're great questions. It's really easy to write you know, exam questions around symbolic experiential, but no one's doing that anymore. Just newsflash folks. So it's like surreal. It is like this trip back into the past when you look at our licensing exams. 
And then you have, so they're one piece of the puzzle. And, and yeah, kind of like educational programs have to prepare folks for licensure, but we have very little influence on what is on that exam. So that's one huge, very difficult piece of the puzzle to influence, you know, and then we have the accreditation standards, which, I mean, they move very slowly. We have more influence on that because they, they, they're more stakeholders who are able to give their, you know, two cents, but still it's a very slow process to move that. And then quite frankly, I've discovered as someone who directs a marriage family therapy program, it's hard to get faculty who trained up. You know, when I tell people you need to teach these newer theories, I get this deer in the head like, but I don't know that theory. And I'm like, well, train yourself up. And this is a whole new, you know, situation. So the problem is we have these huge systems that are very hard to shift and change that are uh, very rooted in the past. And they are not evolving at the rate that practitioners need to be evolving. So it's really a very difficult thing to do. And I'll tell you, I'll be, I'll be honest. I don't feel like it's going to be my role in the world. I can let someone else fix those systems. I mean, my solution has been is I teach this other course that I've created that it's synthesis. I think the answer is going to be synthesis. Cause if you remember back to some of your you know, grad studies courses or to a recent CEU and you're listening to this new theory and you're like, well, that sounds a lot like XYZ theory. Sounds a lot like, you know, that, that, that theory. Well, the honest to God truth is, and I'm going to just, I'm just going to say like it is, yes, there's a lot more overlap than distinction between these theories. And we have to start boiling down the core concepts into, into basic frameworks, very simple methods that are, it's, it's not even integration. I mean, we're past integration. That was a couple of decades ago. This is synthesis. We have to really extract from what we, the knowledge base that we have and put it into a very simple framework that a human being can use. Because what we have now is almost impossible. The way we train our students and, and our licensed people too, the way they're supposed to be updating themselves, it's not, the pieces don't fit together nicely. And we're going to, we have to synthesize this knowledge base in a much more coherent way. With this synthesized knowledge base, it seems like it would come down to very common interventions. I'm thinking kind of the, the kind of the common elements of therapy. And it, to me, it seems like that would be very helpful. And it would also mean that folks would then have to study differently for these licensing exams. <laughs> Because yes. people are very attached to these intricate theories with the titles that they have for the, the same thing. You know, they've renamed yes. it, they've slightly yes. tweaked it. And so to me, it seems like there would be a lot of pushback. So t for the therapist, you're describing something that is very empowering. I learn what therapy is, what we commonly see as effective, and what we see on the educational side is bureaucracy and ego and, and hubris holding into these very distinct theories that, you know, it just seems like, well, I, you know, to keep my job, I have to publish. And so now I'm going to create a theory and now everybody's going to have to learn this theory. And I'm now committed to this theory and I'm not going to let it go. So, you know, and I actually think, well, it, there's a lot of different layers here. So I, I actually think 
I, I, I'm working right now on developing, I just call it therapy that works, because if you call it anything else, any theoretical term, you, you, we are so divisive in this field. You know, your postmodern, your systems, or your, you know, your psychodynamic or your CBT, and, and that's, and then you're these little camps, and we're all fighting with each other. And it's just like, it doesn't need to be like that. I actually think you should be using every theory. Because <laughs> you know what, we're dealing with all of human suffering in this world, you know, and it is, you need every bit of wisdom you can find. And so I, I think we've created a lot of artificial tensions and wars that are not actually helping us serve our clients by, you know, uh, dividing up into these little camps is kind of what it feels like to me. And and so, you know, when I first started writing my textbooks, I was very deliberate in how I approached this because I was in a camp. I really was. I'm, you know, in the postmodern world, that's, you know, kind of was my camp. And it was interesting. One of the parts of the postmodern world is this concept of appreciative inquiry, where you learn and use curiosity and really appreciating what's good about the others. And I very intentionally, when I started writing my textbook, said, I am going to approach every single theory that I have. And I had biases. I absolutely did with appreciative inquiry. Somehow these ideas were important enough to really stand out. And I'm going to figure out what it is about each single one. You know, and as I did that, I was really surprised, honestly, the, how I found something really wise in each of these approaches over the years. And so and began to see a lot of these connections. And so I, I think learning to appreciate those, but now we have so many, it's like you're lost unless you're lucky like me and you've had 30 years to slowly piece together the knowledge base of the field. But those who are coming into this, it's just, wow, overwhelming, I think for everybody. So, and it's, you know, I actually think we're at a place where we could, you know, create structures. It's more like a method where you take out even most of that theoretical language because there actually is a skeleton underneath it all. I can't just quite describe it, I think, in a podcast, but there is a skeleton, I, I call it. It's like that you can begin to see, and every single theory kind of maps out on top of this basic skeleton. And when you approach it that way, you begin to see those connections. And so it's much easier to make sense of the many sources of wisdom and knowledge we have in this field. Almost kind of common factors of... Building from there, that there's many factors that we use regardless of what we do, and the rest is kind of the seasonings on the structure of a plate of food here. Looking at this from where we can come from, kind of this basic place, you know, taking this from the idealistic, you know, how, how should we be trained? Like, okay, that's going to be, you know, decades in the making of getting a bunch of disagreeable people to agree on changing all of these systems. What can therapists do for themselves to not get sucked into all of those traps and all of those arguments to follow a good individual training path that they can feel confident and not constantly be worried about what I don't know and falling into imposter syndrome? Well, I, you know, I think finding a very solid, broad method of working that really serves your clients, that could really notice whether or not you're making a difference. Like, 
therapy should, you, you just see results actually relatively quickly in treatment, you know? And so I, I think really focusing, not just, do you like the theory? Are you having a good time? <laughs> um, do you feel good about yourself? But like, are, is, are things changing for your clients? And to really focus on outcomes is one piece. And then to, you know, really be thoughtful about what you get yourself trained in uh, and to learn to really be conscious about learning skill sets and making sure they work. Because the truth is, you know, if we're looking at the common factors, right, you know, any therapy model out there just about can deliver decent outcomes. And the question is, are you able to do that? And how do you put yourself in a position to do that well and consistently? So there's an assessment piece, but this other angle that I'm looking at, because when we go to common factors, it seems like it's very, very clear. They're very broad. They're so broad that, that I think that it's, you know, it's something where that also can be a little bit confusing too, just when it's so broad, right? Yes. Yeah. Common factors is too broad to be useful in the room at this point in history. But when you were talking about the skeleton and that, that all of these theories kind of fall on this same skeleton and, and for me, and I guess this is just where my head went, I think about kind of things that are very systemic can also be impacting the skeleton. And so if we're looking at whether it's systemic bias or oppression, when we're looking at those types of things, I'm wondering if, if, in creating the actual skeleton of what works and, and separating out the language, if that's a way to, to decrease bias or if it's already baked in and if, if oppression is already baked in. Actually, yes. Yeah. I mean, in my, in my system that I've been developing, it's called therapy that works. I don't have a better name because whatever I come <laughs> up with, I know someone's going to hate it for some reason. Um, but yeah, so I, I, you know, there's a way to analyze what happens behaviorally, emotionally, cognitively, and then at the societal level. And so to put that piece in as the fourth kind of level, when you, whenever you're analyzing or assessing what's going on with the client, but is that kind of answering what you're, I, th I think it is. I mean, I think for me, it's, it's something where so much of our history as, as a profession has been guided by hierarchy, structural sort of differences. Yeah. You can continue talking, Kurt. I was agreeing. <laughs> <laughs> it's this fundamental shift of really empowering clients to be in control of some of this process too. It's shifting that hierarchical power that, you know, we can spend, you know, hours and hours talking about the roles of transference and countertransference and what's left unsaid. And to boil it, back to, and you should totally trademark therapy that works. Um, and then be <laughs> argued with like the, you know, 3% of cases where it didn't, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's embracing where mental health field has really come as far as who dictates when therapy works. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. We're awkwardly not stating a question. That's just more of Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And if you look at what really works and there's a ton of research behind this is, you, you know, you have to work from within the client's reality. It has to work for them. I mean, it does have to be the client. I, I talk when I, when I, when I teach this approach, I talk about like entering the client's reality. It's like their holodeck and you've got to go into their holodeck, into their reality to understand what is going to work from where they're standing. It's one of the things I've been realizing 
because in this class that I'm teaching therapy that works, I, I'm like, it's forcing me to identify what I actually do in the room. And I realize what I've done is I literally turn theories inside out and that I literally take the, because the theories are written from the, like a therapist looking at a client. That's how the mm-hmm. theories are written. But if you really want them to work well, you have to take the theory and like flip it inside out and you have to apply it from within the client's construction of the world as the client sees it and then it works like magic. But if you're trying to, it's like squitting, fitting, trying to fit a uh, square peg in a round hole, right? That's kind of what we've been doing. And if the client will go with our reality, that's great. But if they don't, which many of them don't, then it just works so much smoother if you can take the knowledge we have and have it like enter into the clients, make sense within the client's world. And it's like, I I can only describe it as like flipping it inside out. I think that's so important because with a lot of theories and, and maybe this is, you know, getting back into the awkward space, but it seems like a lot of theories assume we know. And, and there's that kind of paternalistic, we know what's best for the client. And what you're describing is really getting into the, to the space, into the holodeck of the client and really understanding from their perspective. But to do that, we have to come from a very humble and curious place and be able to really see from their perspective, which requires so much sitting back and, and active exploration versus doing interventions on clients. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Doing interventions on clients is the least efficient way to go about this work. <laughs> it just really is. I, I really believe, I guess what we're describing here is, you know, obviously I'm trained, at, you know, in collaborative therapy. It's one of my areas specialty and it is really still my home base, but in it, it is so fascinating to me. If you just slow down, like you described and become curious about how your client makes sense of life, interprets life, just asking those questions, having a client put that into words, because most of us don't put it into words in our own heads. We're not aware of it. So someone asks us and we begin to like put all those pieces together. I really think over 80% of what I do is just that. And, you know, there are other interventions that are important. You know, my favorite one to point out to everyone is the research is like exposure is the treatment for OCD folks. Like that's all that works, right? So there are places where you need to be much more intentional about that, but it is fascinating how just slowing down, being curious, entering and really under, as you come to understand how the client makes sense of their life, so many things just unravel and problems get resolved or shift in pretty magical ways so that the work at the end is like sweeping up, you know, a little bit of mess on the floor, kind of what it feels like. It's the leftovers, but it's so clear what you need to do. Oh, and a lot of this seems to be driven by the really siloed parts of our world. The researchers who, as Katie pointed out earlier, need to keep their jobs by publishing research and things get really <laughs> boiled down there. And then the research has to inform the education so that the education is based on something and then students and new therapists get thrown out into the real world and then they experience what you're talking about which is like oh that's only like 20 percent of what's actually going on in the room is there ways to make these parts of the field less siloed to where the researchers actually know what it's like to sit across from people who are more complex than 
one diagnosis and who talk about things more than very specific symptoms of that diagnosis to actually being able to see what the rest of complex human behavior is like. Wow. I mean, and unfortunately, as over the years I've been in the field, it's become more and more siloed. In the beginning, in the beginning when I was really old and the last century as my kids are like, you were alive in the 20th century? Um, <laughs> yep, oh, I was alive. Yep, yep, yep. Um, <laughs> I had so, a client recently, a, a, a middle schooler who referred to the 90s as the late 1900s. And I was... <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, yeah. So back in the last century, it was possible to be a scholar practitioner. Like it was this hyphenated thing. It was foundational, especially for doctoral programs. That's the model. They were all supposed to be teaching us, la, 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 la. But in the last 10, 20 years, we really said that's not possible anymore. Because if you're going to do a clinical trial, the skill set it takes to run a clinical trial, you know, which is what SAMHSA and the NIH, and that's like the gold standard to do that is a full-time job. And that skill set is so different and is so advanced. They don't have time to be a practitioner and to do quality research in the 21st century, what's expected. And so it's pulling us further and further apart actually is, is, is kind of where we're going. Now, I do think research really has moved the field forward in important ways. And we we really need to stay connected with the evidence base. Like when I went to school, it was really considered ethical. And, and I guess Kurt can correct me if I'm wrong on this. It, ethical to use whatever theory you thought would be great or whatever your theory of choice was to treat OCD. I don't think that's ethical anymore because the research is so clear about what works and what doesn't. And so so that really put this, in, I, I think, in a somewhat difficult, you know, spot with that sort of thing. And so, again, we have to take all of that knowledge, kind of getting back to your question, Kurt, the re- as well as the theories need to be synthesized, the research needs to be synthesized. And it really can be. It, it, really, it really can be. I, I do believe I, I've taken the whole DSM. <laughs> I've created this table, I, I don't know, it's probably, I don't know, six, eight pages long, but, and I have synthesized what the research says works for each of the different diagnoses. I mean, this should be widely available. Um, I know I'm going to work on a book, but, can we, but still, I mean, <laughs> we, we need, this can get boiled down to relatively simple, you know, structures and information. And so we have to, the synthesis of research, the synthesis of our theories. And I also think a huge missing gaping hole in the whole field of psychotherapy is there's a lot of motivational research on like how to just set a goal and achieve it, which we don't even have trickling into our programs, you know, or or flowing into the work that we do, which is another very important actually stream of knowledge that I think we need more of in our field. And to answer the ethics question that you're asking here, Parts of the ethics that most people don't even bother to read is in in the preambles, which is basically like we do our things based on science. Mm -hmm. And it's being able to distill and synthesize what the science is that, again, speaks back to what you were talking about earlier of not overwhelming people and being able to help people in a competency based way of being able to 
take this education and be able to implement it with people as clients, as explorers, as being able to have those timely interventions rather than just kind of like coming in overwhelmed, feeling like I have to do something that needs to be justified in this note. And so I'm going to throw an intervention, whether or not it fits and hope that nobody audits this. (laughs) Yeah, that is not, that's not a good place for us to be. I think as a profession, I'd say we too. Yeah. When I'm listening to this, I like the idea of distilling things down to synthesizing them into competency-based steps, those types of things. I also recognize that there's an evidence base that we want to pay attention to. I guess the the place I get held up a little bit, and, and this is something where I think there's a, a an important tension. I think it's gone too far one direction, and I probably was being educated in a similar time where there was eight theories, and so it seems very doable to me, and I'm not, I'm not facing the 20 theories, right? So I, I, I fully recognize my bias. But there is an importance for therapists to also make some of the decisions on their own. And, and I worry that if we distill these things down too far, that therapists will be doing things that they don't necessarily have the background with the evidence base and why they're doing what they're doing. And that, to me, potentially is problematic if the, the research base has its own issues, right? I, I mean, I don't know if I'm asking a, a, an, an intelligent question here, but I think when we're, when we're trying to simplify something down to teach people how to do a thing, I think there still is value in having an understanding of the theoretical underpinnings and the, the broad complexity of what's behind it all. And so how do, I guess, I guess the question is, how do you hold that tension? If Absolutely. you're creating this new, this new yeah. education that doesn't seem to exist. Yes. Well, you know, I would say that I'm with you on that because I'm a total theory nerd and I can read theory forever <laughs> and I love theory. And so, and I do think knowing, you know, reading, I encourage when people are studying my, my licensure course, I said, if you have time, I want you, I give them a reading list of like 10 books. I'm like, know the voices, know that, understand that. So I definitely think understanding the philosophy, but I think, and especially at the doctoral level, Yes, we can throw them 20 theories. I'm good with that. They've got yeah, whatever, yeah. 120 units, and they need to know the difference between Milan, systemic, strategic, and MRI. But at the master's level, you know, understanding strategic, structural, hyphenated, you know, together as one basic theory is going, and you can, you know, and to understand how those two really, most people in practice use both of them together. You know, but on the licensing exam, because it's easier to write questions, we have people like memorizing in these tiny little boxes. And so we need to find like a happy middle ground because, yes, you'll, you'll always be reading lots of theory in this field. There's no way to get around that, no, <laughs> I don't no. think, in my opinion. Um, and you should be reading lots of research, too. Um, but it's creating structures that it's, where it's humanly possible for people to take in that information. It's, it's almost... It's ironic that at a time in history where everyone's attention span is shorter and shorter and smaller and smaller, we are throwing more and more and more at people. And it, it, none of it's sticking in a meaningful way. And so we have to find, and I think we really need to start distinguishing between the master's and doctoral level of training and, and what is learned at each level. But, you know, I, here I am with 30 years of experience and training, and I have been training trainers for like 20 years, right? 
And I'm, I'm looking at what is on the list of, to know for the licensing exam, which, you know, you do that early in your career and you kind of forget about it. But having to go back and do it has been so educational. I'm like, this is insane. This is, I look at the yeah. knowledge statements and I'm like, this isn't like humanly possible. This is awful. And I am even telling some of my students, like 10% of the stuff, like you would have to study so many hours to be able to analyze any research study they possibly could put in front of you. It's not worth it. Miss those. You just need to get a 70%. Like, don't even worry about it. So we, it's like, it's like throwing, we're throwing everything, you know, at these poor folks taking exams and expecting them to memorize far more than is we know based on our new neurobiology is really reasonable to be expecting. Where can people practically go from here when it comes to getting better and working with their clients? Well, I do think you need to really think about and, you know, your individual journey as a clinician and getting and how you want to move forward, because there are options, there are different options. But in general, I think learning one really solid theory well, that really makes sense. Um, and that you can actually get training in. You know, I talked to some people who claim that they're satire therapists. I'm like, where did you get your training? And they're like, oh, I read some books. I'm like, that, that's not training, folks. <laughs> you need yeah. to really invest in a program that will be, you know, intense, in-depth where you learn some skills. And so, and there are definitely a number of them out there. But I, I think really making sure and just focusing on that and not getting distracted by everyone else telling you what else you should be doing or might better what what might be better like pick one stick with it do it well master that and look for results so there's a lot that you were talking about that was either in development or that you've already created and and so i'm sure that people would want to get in touch with you and talk through these things with you so where can people find you well, I have started what I call the Institute for Therapy That Works. And so you can find it at therapythatworksinstitute.com or diangayhart.com. I do have a course, you know, where I actually teach this method. I, it's the best word I can come up with at the moment for trying to really find a way of working that synthesizes, uses everything you know, you can pick whatever other theories you want to use, but to really create a holistic structure from beginning to end that really grounds folks um, in what they're doing. So I'm very excited about that. And it's funny because that's the, I have one, so I have this one project that's synthesizing every, all the knowledge. And it's really funny. On the other hand, I do have this laugh your way to license your course that is going to teach you all the different little silos that you need to know. And it's a very kind of bizarre, actually, as the instructor of both courses, one is how many little teeny tiny theories can I teach you? And then where's the master theory? So I offer both options should you need them. And we'll include links to those in our show notes. You can find those at mtsgpodcast.com. And you can check out the Therapy Reimagined Conference where Dr. Gayhart will be helping us out and talking about the future of therapy there. Uh, you can find out more information about that and all the latest up-to-date news at therapyreimaginedconference.com or follow us on our social media. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy and Dr. Diane Gayhart. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. 